0: Welcome to the Amateur Golf Podcast, where we find stories worth telling. Today's guest is golf course architect David McClay Kidd. A few housekeeping items before we get to the interview. First, be sure to visit our website, AmateurGolf.com. We are the only site that provides you with schedules, news, rankings, and results for amateur golf around the world. New members can use the code BIRDIE50 to receive a discount on their first year of membership, which unlocks access to our massive database of information and access to our events. That's BIRDIE50, B-I-R-D-I-E-5-0. Second, we have a new sponsor of the podcast, Cobra Golf. Cobra Golf has just released their Dark Speed line of clubs, DarkSpeed is the culmination of meticulous attention to detail and precise integration of their most advanced technologies using space-grade materials and the expertise of aerospace engineers to develop the fastest driver Cobra has ever built. Experience out of this world speed with Cobra DarkSpeed. Today's guest, David Mulcahy-Kid, is a world-renowned golf course architect He burst onto the scene when he built Bandon Dunes, the first course at Bandon Dunes Resort. Since Bandon Dunes, McClay Kidd has designed numerous courses like Gamble Sands in Washington State, Mammoth Dunes at Sand Valley, Macrohanish Dunes in Scotland, and he talks to us about The Tributary, a project in Idaho that he's returned to tweak along with his first project in Texas called laura loma outside austin, austin texas which is due to open in the next 12 to 18 months here is david mcclay kid okay I want to welcome in david mcclay kid to the AmateurGolf.com podcast david thank you so much for your time joining us from a snowy bend oregon uh in january yeah no golf here today that's
1: for sure <laughs> i'm a stone's throw from Bandon and dunes and uh there's golf played there every day so if i get really sick of it i can drive over the mountains and go tee up over there
0: and we also have our founder uh pete lukowski uh here as well who has a long history and relationship with bandon and with sand valley and so You wanted to be here and be a part of this too so pete uh welcome to uh maybe the third or fourth appearance i wouldn't miss this for the world what a great opportunity (laughs) so the golf architect for the golfer
2: is the ultimate connection
1: (laughs) well i hope i don't disappoint peter
0: (laughs) well I i wanted to start and i was i've listened to and watched you on you know no laying up videos you played. Tethro, with those guys a few years back, I listened to a 2017 interview you gave with Andy Johnson this morning, and uh, he asked you, as Andy tends to do, a, a quirky question at the beginning of the podcast, what your New Year's resolution was because it was a January reporting, and uh, your answer was you didn't really have a specific one, but you said you're you're working towards kind of continuing to build fun golf courses and helping people kind of enjoy the game through the design of your courses and that was seven years ago um and i know you're currently returning to a golf course tributary in idaho which was opened in 2009 um i'm wondering if kind of going back to a golf course you built you know eight years after you made that resolution with andy on the podcast off the cuff um What's that experience been like going back to a golf course and and working on working on one that that you built uh kind of after bandin and in the middle of a kind of a, a swell of work in in 09. You know the the first thing
1: I I often end up explaining to people when they say oh you're going back to tributary to to make changes and improvements you're going back to the castle course or Tadra or Macraish dunes or any number of the courses that we've done over this period. And sometimes, you know, there's this uh, potential that they see that we screwed something up and now we're back fixing it. Uh, And I try and explain that, you know, if we truly screwed it up, nobody would have us back. Uh, The project wouldn't be doing very well and there'd be no impetus. So the reality is that when we go back to these courses to make refinements, I would rather call them, uh, usually on the heels of them being Generally, very successful and loved uh, by the players and the ownership and the membership and whomever, because it's on the back of that, the heels of that, that we get the opportunity to make these refinements. So, Tributary, originally built uh, and called Huntsman Springs, has now uh, uh, enjoyed new ownership and they are. Uh, really investing in the property. The new members are joining. And it gave us a real opportunity to go back and review what we'd originally done and say, how do we refine it? How do we make it better? And some of it was just purely technical. The original construction uh, hadn't taken account of the fact that the stones migrate from below and end up filling up all the bunkers. So there was an opportunity to improve the construction of the bunkers, uh, which probably didn't really exist 15 or more years ago when a uh, tributary originally opened. Uh, so we had that opportunity, but there was also the chance to go through the course and say, you know, what does this bunker actually ask of the player? Is this, is this preventing opportunity? Is it overly punishing a slightly wayward shot? that's now out of position in any case, you know, let's take our, our our understanding of the game now, fifteen years on, and bring it to the golf course and decide uh, what is appropriate and what isn't. And the reality was, a uh, tributary when originally built had well, well in excess of a hundred plus bunkers. I think it was near one hundred and fifty, uh, and that was overkill. Uh, and so there were a number that could be removed because they just were never in play they just nobody was ever getting in them or they were in a position that was preventing a strategic opportunity for a player to actually put a ball in play in that spot so we took out probably a couple of dozen over the the whole uh, golf course we moved a bunch uh, either slightly giving a bit more room or even moving them to create a tighter gap so there, the the whole project started out as an improvement to the bunker construction, but actually ended up being a complete review of the strategic design of the golf course. How can we make it more interesting for the members and their guests? Uh, and we had a wonderful contractor out of Seattle that did all of the works uh, just this past fall. We we were pretty amazed. We didn't think they'd get it all done, but they worked through Uh, short days and some cold weather, and they got the whole thing uh, completely done. And the course will be back up and running this summer. And the the members will barely notice. Uh, My guess is experience tells me that when we make changes to these courses uh, that that have been in play for decades, the members know every edge of every bunker until they don't. It's incredible that I can take a giant bunker out of the middle of a fairway. And for the first couple of the weeks of the season, they'll remember. And by a month in, they're like, What bunker? No, there was never a bunker here. Or vice versa. You add one and they're like, No, this has always been here. Like, pretty sure it wasn't. So it's shocking how short a golfer's memory really is. What, what,
0: um, as far as taking some of those bunkers out and looking at the strategic value of shots or placement of of bunkers or other hazards or just um, anything else or tributary is was some of that equipment based are you i mean 2009 to 2023 2024 now is you know you look back at drivers from twenty two thousand nine. 2009 things have changed a lot is there was there anything is there anything in that or are you are you looking at uh, high handicappers mid handicappers trying to capture the whole gamut what what kind of process runs through getting rid of a bunker or taking something out i guess so
1: staying in an overview and not getting completely granular with individual cases there were bunkers that were now uh, easily overcome by a modest golfer you know a 10 handicap with a modern driver and the latest Pro V1 was 30 yards past it easily and so In those cases, we felt that some of those bunkers were really just punishing slower swing speed golfers that weren't going to be threatening Birdie anyway. So we were removing some of that to give a little more landing area to allow someone a little more generous spot to be able to land a shorter club into. Uh, And then going into the greens, uh, I think, and this, I don't know how much of this is true or imagined. Uh, You know, I'm now, I was 40 maybe when tributary was uh, first opened. I'm 56 now. I'm spinning the ball as fast or faster now than I might have been then. You know, I can probably stop a six iron that I don't think I was able to stop 15 years ago. Uh, So in playing those second shots in, Uh, my my partner Nick and I, and he's really good. So he's a plus two. I'm currently a nine. So there's a big gap in our games. But even between us, you know, I'm saying, hey, you know, I always thought this green was best approached from the left because the green was, you know, long and skinny. But now I can actually approach it from the hard right because I can stop the ball in such a short space that I'd actually rather be a coming into this green along its widest axis because I can stop it on the short axis rather than going down the other side and using the length of the green to stop a running shot. I mean, this is nerdy stuff. So hopefully you're, hopefully you're uh, you, the amateur golfers that are listening uh, are following along. So that, that has become part of it. And then there's, you know, adding on to that comment I made to Andy seven years ago, I've had seven years and a bunch of projects to try and uh, really dig deep into what makes golf fun, where that playability thing goes. I, and where I'm at right now is I'm starting to play with the the, the two. One of the things I used to say, say was that challenge and playability were not the scales of justice. Right. Right. Uh, you can build an extremely playable golf course that is still challenging. By example, uh, Augusta National, right? The, The golf course is challenging by anybody's estimation. That looks like, I've never had the chance to play it, although walked it many times. That looks like a pretty challenging golf course, but it also looks eminently playable. It looks like I could make bogey after bogey after bogey 18 times without that much problem. The old course would be another example. You know, assuming it's not blowing 30 miles an hour, you can go out there and make bogeys 18 times. But shooting in the 60s, that takes some real effort. you got to be a really good golfer. So that's my point, that the, the scales of justice are not balanced by challenge and playability. And we can achieve both of them on, on any golf course. Mammoth Dunes would be a great example. Gamble Sands is another great example. The, uh, an average guy having an average day Can get around there and have a modicum of success with modest abilities. But a really good player still has to be able to hit quality golf shots to make putts. All of this to say that that was me seven years ago. Where we are now, seven years later, we are getting so deep in the weeds of this because it's starting to occur to me that there is some modicum of scales of justice. And where those scales come in, are the difference between a low handicapper and a high handicapper and the stroke index, right? Because the low handicapper is disadvantaged because he's giving strokes. And if I allow a modest golfer who's already got a stroke the ability to really screw up and recover to par, that means that my low handicap golfer without that stroke is going to lose the hole. Unless they do something exceptional, so the the thing we're playing with now is as we layer upon layer of this fun and playability uh, conundrum that we've been working through is how do we get it to be fair in a, a a mano a mano situation where a low handicapper is giving strokes to a higher handicapper, and I guess this is brought right home because Nick and I play golf a lot. He's plus two, I'm nine, right? So I'm getting. Half the holes I get stroke on, and if half the holes I effectively make an error and then rescue back to par with a stroke, he loses almost every it's time. A big, it's a big gap so, that
2: you're, you're talking about there, and I, I don't mean to interject a story, a Pete story here, but I tend to do that. I'll give you a little break for a second, David, and tell you it is one of your courses at Mammoth Dunes and i played it uh a year ago with uh, a gentleman named Ben Corfee and his dad and it was me and my son and we hold a father son tournament as part of our two man links championship which we started at Bandon right so 23 years of Bandon. now we're at San Valley and we're playing Mammoth Dunes and 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 Ben was a was a division 1 golfer and he's got his amateur status back and he was going along pretty good but the funny thing was on the first hole he was a plus I think I was, I was playing as a three and he was like a plus six or seven. And I, I remember saying to him the the difference between us is so great. Like I was, I, whatever it was, I want to play a match with you. And I believe I, I was getting 10 or 12 strokes. And so I shot 73 and he shot 60. So at the last hole, when he holed out for Eagle on 18 at, at, at Mammoth Dunes, I said, I think that's thirteen under, and then we all realized we sighed and said it's a par seventy-three. But he beat me in that match on the par three. He topped a birdie, is it like fifteen or sixteen? And uh, it was a what I'm saying is it was a fair match at a course you designed. So you're what you what you're doing is working because he could go low, but I could go low, and you know. So I don't know if that was meant to happen at Mammoth. Everybody loves Mammoth because of its generosity but it's it can be very penal in places too if you if you find some of those nasty bunkers
1: well i I still think that the the core tenant of playability is getting people off the tee it's as simple as that if you don't get everybody off the tee and into play some way somehow so that they can hit it again the hole's kind of over uh and that's where i don't really enjoy the U.S. Open type setups where you're hitting into a 30 yard wide or less fairway, and if you miss it, you're you're done, you're dead. Uh, most people don't have that. You know, even low handicappers don't have a a driver that can get into a 30 yard gap hole after hole. And somewhere like Mammoth, you you've got this big wide area to hit into, which takes away a lot of the intimidation so people generally start actually swinging with some degree of confidence and that confidence breeds more accuracy so they start hitting it where they were aiming I love it so weird juxtaposition you're you're hitting to a narrower gap because i gave you more room to hit it Yeah, it's kind,
2: it's kind of crazy that way yeah it is it's a it's it's not a driving range but it sometimes we, we groove our swings on the driving range probably for the same reason so um you know i i've I'll turn it back to Sean, but I, I wanted to interject that little story because it really goes in line with you playing against your partner and having that gap in handicap. And you should have a fair match, right?
1: Well, the, the best match I played last year was against my good buddy, Gary Fish, who was the founder and owner of Deschutes Brewery, if if you like uh, beer. Uh, and he and I played tributary together. And we're I was up seven, he was up six. And we were going at it Smiling but grinding hole after hole, uh, and we were absolutely loving it. I mean, I, the course was playing fantastic. It's always in great condition, and that course asks a lot of the tee. I don't know if either of you have played it, but there there is a lot going on. There's a lot of uh, undulation, bunkering, wetlands. There's 52 acres of wetlands, so virtually every hole has water somewhere flowing through it, on it, around it. So. There's a lot of drama that, that plays out. By the 18th hole, I think we were both exhilarated and exhausted in the same breath. And we played great golf uh, and then finished all square on 18 uh, and sad that the round was over. And for me, that's you know, the measure of a great day on the golf course.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think it was good. Absolutely. And, and uh, it sounds like you've. Uh, you have got a place that you enjoy returning to so i would i would guess that um being david mcclay kid is not bad because you can just visit your own courses and many others in your homeland or over here or in hawaii uh what's what's it like uh going to play um and when people realize who you are and say oh you're the guy that designed this thing
1: i uh, you know i i love going back to the stuff that Uh, I've done I mean at this point in my life I have something like 30 plus golf courses that are in play I it's always wonderful to catch back up to the superintendent director of golf you know general manager owner if if that's the case I it's the the things that are funny are you know I went to play rolling hills country club in LA a a few weeks ago and as often happens, the superintendent came out and I said, Bob, what the hell are you thinking? The pin positions are insane. He goes, yeah, yeah, I, I knew you were coming. Like, you, don't, you don't have to do that for me. I'm not the plus six. You know, could you have stuck him right in the middle of the greens and made him a quarter inch bigger? That I'd like that better. Uh, so sometimes I in my little world, I get to be like the queen. They say that the queen, when she was alive, never – Never smell other anything other than fresh paint, because they were constantly painting right in front of her. Uh, so I might get that a little bit. Like, boy, these greens are yeah. fast,
2: and they are out there. I just I had the pleasure of playing there last Thursday with Callaway after their um their launch event for their new drivers and clubs. And and uh, gosh, it th- I think those was the tightest fringes I've ever played in my life. To the point where I marked a ball and had to wonder, and is that it? Is that a David McClay kid? I mean, obviously you do links golf and there there are roll-ups and putts and you know, abandoned. We're not going to have greens guarded by heavy rough in the same way that we would at a U.S. Open course. But what about a place like Rolling Hills or or, or Tributary or Laura Loma or any of the places you've done? Because even TPC Stonebrae that I've played, very tight fringes, which um, we call them closely mown areas. What is that a, Is that something you like to do?
1: Well, what I like to do is get the ball to roll. You know, the essence of golf is that it's not an aerial game. And the Scots never intended the golf ball to do nothing but fly through the air. It was always intended to fly through the air and then do something. Uh, And a good golfer is going to make some kind of prediction as to what that do something is. Uh, And it's only by creating tight fringes that you get that something to happen. So, at Rolling Hills, uh, and that's a good one that you brought up. You're you're kind of stuck using Bermuda grass uh, from T to almost green. Well, if you stick with Bermuda grass, no matter how good the superintendent, it doesn't really roll that well, and so the ball is kind of sticky. Uh, so in order to uh, overcome that, we took the greens at Rolling Hills in a very fast bent grass, but then we took a slightly slower bent grass and we extended it all the way out to the fringes and all the way back down the fairway through the whole approach. So when you play a ball in, the the run on the surrounds, the approaches, is pretty close to the same run that the greens have. So that a golfer can predict the release, predict the roll, which if we'd have used Bermuda grass, would never have happened. Now, I'd love to tell you that we, uh, we were we were the original thinkers of that, but we weren't because Alistair McKenzie did it at the Valley Club of Montecito uh, and he did it again at uh, Royal Melbourne. So there are a number of courses that have followed that mold, but not in recent years. So we thought we'd uh, reinvigor that idea and we brought it to Rolling Hills and I think it worked
2: It's amazing. It's a trademark and it's, um, it's exactly what you said. There's nothing worse than a course that's either soggy in front of the green, yet the green's firm, or it doesn't have any way to roll up like some of the modern Bermuda. If you, if you roll it all the way up there and I actually mentioned Royal Melbourne and I'm not a name dropper, I have played Royal Melbourne. Okay. But one of the things there that I find amazing is that the bunkering goes right up to the green service and especially on some of the par threes where, uh, I, I've said the difference between that and rolling hills to me was that you've got a little bit of rough that I don't know if it's better for the golfer or not, because personally I'd rather be in the bunker and then in that little section of rough, you grow there. But uh,
1: I would love to, to replicate that uh, Melbourne sand belt look, you know, the Royal Melbourne being the most famous, but you know, Kingston Heath and Victoria and Mel uh, metropolitan, they're all, they all have that very sort of flashed bunker look where, it almost looks like they're scalloped into the greens rather than being adjacent to the greens. Uh, it's tough to do. It's tough to build that. Uh, you need, I think what you really need is sand that's damn near like building sand that's willing to, you know, sit tight. If, if I'd have tried that abandon, the sand is kind of loose and it would have, it would have settled down. I, I couldn't have gotten it to stand up that stiff. Uh, So you need a very particular site to be able to create exactly that look. One day I'll find it. I would love to to take inspiration from those courses and build something that looks similar. We have a couple of things on the docket right now that may be capable of that, but until we're out there with a bulldozer and an excavator, we won't know for I sure. I didn't
2: realize the technicalities required to do that, or, the, or in that case, it was done in the old days. But, but all I know is when you're playing a par three and you think you've hit the green and you watch it trundle into a bunker, it's kind of it's it's everything we love about golf. It's pain and pleasure all in the same thirty seconds. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's the drama. I mean, I think the thing that we love in all of sports and and golf is what we're talking about now is the the drama that can play out, and that drama is so much more enthusing if the ball rolls. You know, when you think about all the holes that we love watching on TV, the 16th at Augusta National. It would never be as good if you didn't see that ball land on the green and then saw it trickle and and you're saying to yourself that could be in, that could be in. And then it doesn't go in and you're like, okay, now let's see the next guy hit and he lands a few inches to one side or other. And you're like, okay, that one could be in. And the drama plays out for what feels like minutes as the ball trickles. And yet day in, day out on the tour, we watch Rory hit a five iron and the thing takes two hops and stops and there's zero drama. It is drama less and I, 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 I wish I were king and I would make the best in the world play the courses where the drama is going to play out the most. I, I want to see the 16th Augusta everywhere. I want to see the ball roll. I want to see the drama. Whether it's fair or not, I'm a spectator and I'm paying my dollars to watch these guys. I want to see things happen. I want, to, I, I want my heart in my mouth as I watch that ball move after it lands. And if it doesn't move after it lands, it's kind of binary. You know, it's it's not that interesting. You watch the ball hit and you're like, okay, that's over. Take me to the next guy.
0: Just a quick interruption to remind you about our sponsor, Cobra. The new Cobra Darkspeed drivers feature three distinct models to unlock speed. The Darkspeed LS is designed for players with faster swing speeds, seeking maximum speed, and workability in a lower launching and lower spinning head. The Dark Speed X is for players seeking fast ball speeds with more forgiveness in a back-weighted traditional size profile. The Dark Speed Max is designed for players looking for the ultimate combination of speed and forgiveness. The back weight setting provides the most accuracy while the heel setting provides up to 11 yards of draw bias. Sounds pretty good to me. So make sure you go check out Cobra Dark Speed wherever you can get or purchase clubs. Let's get back to our interview with David McClay Kidd. It's a good, that's a good little transition to what you're one of the places you're currently working on um, in Texas outside of Austin, Laura Loma. And um, I would, I know I kind of did a little bit of reading, but I'd love to hear. What that project is like. You're kind of building it a little bit like Tributary for a community. So you've got regular golfers. You mentioned, you know, members and guests at Tributary. Laura Loma is going to have the same kind of feel. What is that design process like when you're building it for someone who's going to be playing it every day, a couple times a week um, versus the bandons and the places where you want people to want to come back after playing it uh, and, and travel? A long way to get there
1: well can i can i just back up just a tiny bit and let you guys know i had never really been to texas i I mean i'd been to houston international airport and that was pretty much it Uh, you know i'd never really been to texas i certainly had never played any golf in texas so when uh, these guys called me up and said hey you know would you be willing to look at a project outside of austin i go on google earth i don't really know a whole lot but the first time i zoom in comes up Austin Golf Club. I'm like, wait a minute. Wasn't that the first course Ben Crenshaw and Bill Coor did? Like, if it's right next to that, then I think I'm probably in. I mean, if it was good enough for them, I'm probably in. Uh, and sure enough, I get out there. The, the two courses are literally a couple of drives and a wedge apart. So that was huge for me. You know, anywhere that, you know, my contemporaries are or have been. I want to be to uh, I know that the sites are going to be good. I know that the caliber of golf and the golfer's IQ is probably high Uh, and I know that the competition between the courses for for which one people love the most is going to be right up there and that's a fun spot to be in. Uh, I'm not really that enthused about working on even a great site out in you know, truly nowhere where no one's really paying any attention isn't as rewarding as being in the mix and and having golfers like your listeners go see these places and play them and hopefully have fun and debate which ones they like best. So Laura Loma is right in the mix. You know, Austin's booming. Austin Golf Club is right next door. It will be the first thing I've ever done in that part of the world. So super excited about all of that. I, the site itself is right along uh, the Perdinalis River and the bottom end of Lake Travis. So it's got a lot of water's edge. I think we have 12 of the 18 holes are on the water's edge one way or another, which is, you know, great golf next to water usually works quite well. So we are we have the basic ingredients to, to do something great. Uh, and the way that it's set up, the, the group that are developing this, a lot of them are some of them are ex-Discovery Land. One of the principals is ex-Augusta Augusta National. So they've got pretty high golf IQs. I'm not dealing with a home builder that says, you know, do whatever you need to do so I can sell houses. Uh, they've been able to allow us to use probably the best land on the property for <laughs> golf. Uh, you know, the homeowners are set back. The golf course... Uh, you know, is not playing through corridors of real estate. The golf is sort of out on the water's edge, looking out across the Texas hill country. Uh, they're not sparing the horses. I mean, we're we're spending whatever needs to get spent to build something cool. I've got my A team down there. So the guys that are there right this second were in Nebraska last year, finishing off Grey Bull for the Dormy Network. Uh, then they were up at Gamble Sands, uh, building the second course up there and now that whole crew is in texas so it is my a team they're all plus handicappers that are there right now from a design and build perspective if not a playing a golf perspective so we got we got a good crew down there we just hope the weather's kind
0: we're there just kind of starting thinking about texas and texas golf and What, what kind of things, is there anything you're trying to implement or that's part of the design that, that is for lack of a better term, Texan or inspired by places nearby or Austin country club? Um, or are you sticking to kind of David McClay kid golf? Um, whatever that means. Uh, Yeah, whatever
1: that means. I'm not sure what that means. (laughs) Uh, You know, Texas is an interesting state golf wise. You know, it's a bit like Florida, you know, there, the, the, reputation that the state has is giant because of the players not giant because of the golf courses you know it's an odd thing it's the biggest state in the lower 48 uh you've got multiple u.s major champions uh and yet if you looked at a top 100 list you know wisconsin beats it hands down uh, so it's an interesting conundrum that there are not more great golf courses in the great state of texas uh, so that makes it very interesting you know what is possible i uh, from my perspective i would hope that we take inspiration from great sites and this is a great site so we've got these old live oaks everywhere that are hundreds of years old from what i can tell this cool scrubby vegetation on the ground and wispy grasses it's kind of a semi-arid environment so hopefully relatively easy to find a ball hit way off into the rough uh you got the texas hill country that you're looking out across so we and beautiful rolling topography it's not wild by any means it's not sand dunes or anything but it's softly rolling with wonderful views so we have the basic ingredients for good golf and plenty of land. So I don't know. There's nothing tells me we can't build something that's really uh, compelling from a golf perspective. Uh, and Texas needs a, f- a few more great golf courses. So we're enthused to get on with it and see what we can do in Texas. Maybe we'll, might be the only one we ever do in Texas.
0: <laughs> what What's it like trying to, work with space or limited space or having you said you have a lot of space are there would would you rather have kind of a blank blank template that's wide wide open or are you more comfortable having some parameters or something to kind of work within
1: you know i that's a good one uh, i guess if you took both ends of that spectrum if you take something like uh the gray project that we did for uh the dormi network they 1800 acres, go wherever you want. I mean, it's like giving a writer a completely blank piece of paper and saying, I don't have any expectations. This could be a a novel, it could be historical, it could be futuristic, whatever you want, write wherever you want, but I want a bestseller. And there's a degree of writer's block where you're like, holy shit, you know, I, there's no limitation. I could do whatever I want. And you're kind of stuck because you don't know what step to take first. And then on the other hand, you can have a site like Rolling Hills uh, in LA that Peter played, that's so constrained with so many constraints that there's very little wiggle room. And so you're trying, you're just trying to figure out how to make it work. How do I, how do I figure out the puzzle pieces to get to a point where I have something workable? And Laura Loma sits probably in the middle of those two. We have a site that's sufficiently large enough to easily lay out 18 holes. But within that site, we've got this waterfront. We've got these big gulches that cut in from the river. We've got these beautiful giant live oaks. So there is a number of constraints, even within that large site, that you want to respect. And once you start respecting those constraints, the golf course kind of starts to lay itself out. And you come to a, at Laura Loma, we came to a relatively easy solution quite quickly because the constraints painted us into a a solution where you're like, okay, well, that works. And I don't see any reason why it doesn't work. I mean, that that looks like it's cool. We got a bunch of cool holes. We're on the water. We got sufficient land around it. Okay, we're good. Let's go. Now we can just take that foundation of a layout and now we can layer upon layer all of the design from basic strategic playing design all the way to the individual edge of a bunker or the roll in a green. And all that happens during the construction process over the many months to come. You know, it, this project's a good year away from finishing. Uh, and in that year, we will make a million little decisions in each one of those adds on to all these different layers that end up you guys walking through in minutes that took us weeks. You know, it, it's kind of like making a movie. I often describe it that way, that you, if you're watching the, the latest uh, movie, you know, Marvel movie, and there's some amazing CGI sequence and it takes 30 seconds on screen and you're like, oh yeah, that was cool. And you don't even think about it and you're carrying on with the story. That's exactly what we're doing. We might have sweated weeks over uh, something, the left side of a green, and you may not even hit the ball there and you moved on uh, and we're completely unaware of it. Uh, And so the the effort that we're putting into this uh, hopefully isn't – you're not completely aware that it happened, but you would be aware if it didn't happen. If it wasn't there, you'd be aware. And we don't want you to be aware. We want you to see it as this seamless thing where you're like, well, of course it's like that. It looks entirely in keeping and natural with everything else. But we we may have taken considerable effort to get there.
2: Yeah, I'm sensing uh, in these oak trees, I'm, I'm sensing there's going to be an integral oak tree. And I don't know if it's going to be alive or dead, because I'm thinking of places, one that you didn't do, the preserve in Carmel, where you have this oak that's dead, that's lining the 15th uh, right side of the fairway, and it's in play. And I don't know if you would ever do that, but it's, um, it's pretty cool to have an iconic structure like that would you would you consider I, that i
1: definitely would consider it the only thing about trees uh, or any vegetation is the they have a finite lifespan and uh they, they have a horrible habit of disappearing long before i wanted them to and suddenly i've got this hole that was fundamental around some tree or other and then five years later it decides its time is up and it dies on me and i'm like oh now this hole doesn't make any sense so I'm always a little nervous. The the second that Mammoth Dunes has a pine tree that's left of center, and when we were designing that hole, I kept saying to my guys, "I'm cool with leaving the tree, but let's figure out how the hole still makes sense if and when that tree dies." So we we think it through so that the tree is kind of an addition to the strategy, not the singular point of the strategy because of the fact that it could blow over on any given day.
0: I, got, I have one, as you were talking about Laura Loman, and I've heard that you use a basketball to kind of test slopes before you start growing grass, and that it reacts similarly to a golf ball in, in comparison to maybe other different sports. A sporting equipment, soccer ball or a softball or a baseball. One of my, Is that still something you one do? One of my
1: mentors early in my career was a guy called Oren Vincent, who was the founder of OB Sports. And uh, Oren was the the real power behind Gamble Sands. He he persuaded the ownership there to build that project. And I was out there back in 20, 2008, 2009, something like that, and trying to roll a golf ball around on dirt that we'd shake. Oren's like i used to use a basketball what he goes yeah i tried a soccer ball i tried a volleyball you know nothing quite rolled the same basketball is heavy enough with enough pressure that it kind of has its own momentum and it it, once it starts rolling it'll kind of keep rolling where soccer ball won't and sure as hell he was right you know we tried it we monkeyed around with it he was out there and gathered up all the kids balls from the owners and basketball pumped up hard, worked great. You could just get it to start rolling and it would actually leave a track in the sand on the green. And you could, you could see a bit like the the, the thing on TV where they show you where the guys got to put it. It would leave that mark. And be like, Hey, you know that it dived left too hard. We don't want it to dive left that fast. We want the player to be able to make that putt around that shape and I'd call bulldozer back and, make little adjustments, pat it all back down again, roll the basketball. Like, oh yeah, that's perfect. That works good. So that was 15 years ago. And the, my guys now, I turn up on these projects at the, at the point at which we're ready to start finalizing shaping. Sure as shit, they've got, you know, there's a basketball. They're like, hey, we got the basketball. And we get, here's the funny thing is we get to the end of these projects and we often say to the owners or the management, whoever, hey, do you want this basketball? And we, every time so far, they go, yeah, no. What the hell do we want that for? Like, you know, you might want this thing in 20 or 30 or 40 years time. Somebody would be like, this was the basketball that they used to shape all the greens. Yeah. yeah. You know, I had I had another one. This is an odd story, but I, I there's a boot manufacturer here on the West Coast called Danner. And all the loggers wear them. And so I started wearing them when I was building Bandon because that's what all the loggers were wearing. So I then go from Bandon to Hawaii, and I'm building Nenea. Have you played that one, Peter? I haven't played that one yet. You gotta add that one to your list. And I, I built Nenea with this pair of Danner logger boots from Oregon. I got to the end of the project and I said to the incoming general manager, I said, these boots are trash. They've been out here in the lava in Hawaii for two years. Uh, I'm probably going to chuck them, but maybe, maybe strangely enough, you want to throw them in a box somewhere, and in God knows how many years, they might be something that would be fun for the club to have. The club called me like a year ago. They were like, hey, do you have any mementos or anything? And I was like, you know, funny enough, I had those boots, but they're gone. <laughs>
2: <laughs> All future projects, listen yeah, in. Listen in The old pair podcast. of boots and the
1: basketball might be worth putting in a cupboard in 100 years' time. <laughs> They might be interesting to someone.
2: Well, these projects sound amazing, and uh, PR agency, please, if you're listening, add Pete lakowski and Sean Melia, M E L I A, to the list for grand opening preview because we will go there and cover it. We uh, we ab- ab- seriously, it's it's a great opportunity. I, we've been lucky enough to attend some of these type of events and to play a course with the architect talking about what's going on, and especially having after having a preview this far in advance. Now, this sounds like an amazing place, and. I've enjoyed everywhere I've played. I, and I think uh, we, we really wanted you to talk about these projects, but um, I, I don't think we'd be doing this podcast justice if we didn't talk about Bandon a little bit because I feel like I know you every time I've stayed there in my 28 times. The phone, uh, you pick it up for a shuttle and it's hello. Hello, this is Golf Architect David McLeod, kid. And I mean, maybe you can fill in the rest of that message. You probably know it by heart. I, don't, I forget what you say next. I think right. right uh, do you remember? And, uh...
1: Out on the wild wind, sweat, dunes. I think I have it even written up on my uh, on a poster over here. Uh, yeah, golf as it was truly meant to be is how I finished it. Uh, and that, that was the original wake-up call when the resort opened 25 years ago this year. Uh, and they've used it ever since. In fact, for a while, they were selling hats with the golf as it was meant to be written on the back of the hat. And that came from that. Wake up call. Twenty five years ago, I should have trademarked that somehow.
2: It might, might be, yeah, it might be. Well, they and they've got, of course, Dream Golf. And for our company, we are a, a repository of information for the competitive game. So we we really do the big picture, and we are really a membership based site. But years ago, when I was launching, and it's our twenty fifth year, just like Bandon celebrating twenty five now. So I know how old that course is because I just got invited to the twenty fifth year celebration. And, um, it's just an incredible place. And for, for me, it's, you know, I, I think it tells a story when you go through a lifestyle cycle and you realize people have been married on 16 green, people have buried their ashes on 16 green. I don't know if there's been any births out there, but it's a true life cycle course. You, you know, you're, maybe I have seen pregnant women there, so you never know, but you've designed a truly iconic course that, uh, that people we all debate which is our favorite at, at the resort because there's so many courses there. But, um, you know, I, I think I'd like to have you just talk a little bit about what the Kaiser relationship and designing Bandon sort of meant to your career and that piece of property where it's, you know, kind of where it is in yeah, your I'd heart.
1: I'd love to. I mean, the first thing I'd say is I I'm so often dragged into the conversation by passionate golfers, by which one's the best. And uh, as they argue it, I have to remind everyone, you don't have to pick. You get to play them all. It's fine. You can have a favorite and a least favorite, but you can't say this one's good and that one's bad. They're all great. Otherwise, none of us would be going. I mean, I, I have made many trips to Bandon where I didn't play my own course and I wasn't disappointed. Uh, you know, the T-sheets the fool all the time. So, yeah, yeah often I'm there at a moment's notice and I'm playing whatever course I can get on that doesn't, uh, that it's not, I'm going to be able to play before it gets dark. So that's the first thing I'd say. Obviously, you know, Bandon for me was the beginning of my career, really. There, there were a few things that I'd done before, but nothing meaningful. When I did Bandon, I, you know, I'm the son of a Scottish greenkeeper my childhood was spent around St. Andrews and Carnoustie and Turnbury and Glen Eagles and all these famous courses in Scotland. That was all I ever knew. So when I went to Bandon uh, and Mike Kaiser gave me the the nod to go ahead and build the first course, you know, people look at it now and say, well, this was a, a seminal moment in golf architecture in America, you know, this is, this was the rebirth of links. This was, that may be true. I I'm, I'd love that to be true but it wasn't what I was thinking. I was the son of a Scottish greenkeeper doing what I knew and only knew. If Mike Kaiser had said, Hey, I want you to build a golf course. That's a bank grass with bluegrass, fairways, cart paths and lakes. He was talking to the wrong guy. I mean, I, I hadn't played three courses in my life that looked like that. Uh, I, literally. I, mean, I, I remember the year before I went to Bandon, I went to uh, the Callaway facility in Southern California and they were testing their new clubs. My dad and I were there, we're hitting these clubs and my dad and I looked at each other and whispered and said, these clubs are terrible. And uh, the guy came up and he said, well, do you like the clubs? And they're both like, well, we're we're not really fans. They wouldn't really work for us. And they're like, what's wrong? I mean, these are our new high trajectory clubs. Well, there you go, right there. You're like, that's the last thing we want. It's blowing 30 miles an hour. We want this thing to be here, not here. Uh, and so that was where my mind was at 30 years ago. I mean, I, I was looking, I wanted a driver to be 10 feet off the deck under the wind. I wanted to be able to punch a seven iron that didn't make it above head height uh, and stopping, you know, rolling out. So Bandon was really an expression of what I knew to be true And I would love to say that it was an expression of all the Scottish greenkeepers who'd influenced my childhood. I was really just painting out what they had expressed to me throughout my childhood. And I was really just their conduit. Uh, And it's only now that I have uh, the the skills to really articulate what I knew then to be just the basic facts. I, I knew that golf didn't have to be this uh, algebraic formula. I knew that fairways didn't have to be flat. I knew that golfers should walk. I knew the ball should roll. Uh, I knew you didn't need six different types of turf and six different heights of cut to make golf courses interesting. Uh, I knew that they could be completely symbiotic with their landscape. It didn't need a bunch of Japanese flowering maple trees to make it pretty. Uh, and so all of these things, I just fundamentally knew to be true. And I just, Mike Kaiser knew that and he just allowed me to just go ahead and simply lay the course out. I think uh, for others, they're they're trying to force themselves to do something different. And that continues to be a challenge in America. We still see a lot of golf courses being built that are you know, the architect says, well, I really listened to the landscape. And then I go look at it and go, well, how many millions of tons of material got moved to create this? And, uh, and we, we really looked after the environment. I'm like, what environment? There's none, nothing left. They obliterated it all. Uh, and then we, we really were concerned about the fun and playability. And I'm a single digit golfer and I can't break a hundred. I think there's no fun and playability here. It's brutally hard. So I think that as an industry, we still have a ways to go. I still think that there's a lot that can be done to get the golf get the golf course architects, the superintendents, the management companies to understand what the average golfer sees as something being fun.
2: Yeah, and golf carts are a necessity at most facilities, but it's incredible that Bandon doesn't have cart paths. And when you fly a drone or a helicopter over Pebble Beach, you really see how much concrete is in that beautiful links course. And that's what you don't have at Bandon. And, and I think what you said is very, it's very humble. and But I, I believe that both you and the Kaisers and, 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 uh, and the, everybody that was involved with him on, on picking the land and everything you're responsible for, the the rebirth of of Link's style and Lynx golf uh, all around the country and and for people wanting to even travel to the old sod to play the real thing. Well, we
1: live in very exciting times. You know, the golf has not had this kind of resurgence in almost a hundred years. Uh, yeah. You know, when I first came to the states uh, in the early nineties, late eighties, early nineties, I would look at all of these courses being built and I'd scratch my head and think, what do these have to do? with golf where I'm from. They don't look anything like it. You know, it, they're very cookie cutter. You know, it just weren't that interesting. Today, if you're building a new golf course, you can build something that's pretty good and no one's going to pay attention. I mean, you have to be on your AAA game. I mean, the, the stuff that's being built is spectacular. The My peer group, I visit most every course that my peers are building And I wander around and marvel at the creativity and the subtlety of what they're doing. It's a wonderful time to be a golfer, especially a traveling golfer, to be able to enjoy all of this golf that's being built purely for the joy of the game. It's not being built to sell real estate or high-end memberships. I mean, there's a lot of golf being built that the focus is the best golf virtually every client I have, that's what they say. What does it take to build the best golf? And on that, the rest will follow. And I think that's something else that Mike Kaiser can take credit for. You know, developers have realized that if the golf's really good, all of the other things they want will happen regardless. If the golf's mediocre, they're going to be pushing the rock uphill from the very beginning.
2: Right. And, you know, I I, um, don't even want to call Bandon... Not the real thing, because I think it's just as much a Lynx course as anywhere. I've heard Colin Montgomery refer to some courses as Lynx style because he wants to quickly correct people on what Lynx is, of course, you know, proud Scott, but uh, uh, we've got to go back across to some of the courses you're either doing or have done there, and uh, I've read about Mac I'm not going to say it right Macrahanish dunes
1: Good job. I think yeah, not bad. Out of it.
2: For a Californian. Yeah, um, and and I've I've played, I've not played there. I'm planning on visiting this July. And uh, I've heard that you didn't, and I don't know the reason, but there's a reason why you didn't move many of the dunes land there. So almost the extreme of architecture, what you described as you know, the land needing to, to dictate the design. Yeah, Maybe you could expound on that. That's on an island. No, right, Macarena right, Dunes is on the island.
1: mainland, but it's on a peninsula. So. It's, peninsula. it's right. almost an island. I mean, it's, it's one bridge right. away from being an island.
2: Uh, the long and winding road and the and, 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 song, and, and, the
1: long and winding road is about driving that peninsula down the Molokai tire uh, right. and it's right okay. on the tip of it. And because of extreme environmental concerns, we were literally only allowed to build 18 putting surfaces and that's all. So nothing else was touched. The tees, the fairways, the bunkering, it is all exactly as we found it. So if you don't like it, uh, I think for, it, it's so untouched and natural that you're basically playing cross country golf through through dunes. And all I decided was where you start and where you finish. Other than that, it's pretty much untouched. Uh, and occasionally someone will say, well, you should have moved this and you should have moved that. And I say, well, mother nature wouldn't let me. So you're, if you don't like it, Find somewhere else to play.
2: So how much time did that take then relative to another course from the perspective that you still had to make sure grass was growing and you, you are obviously a greenskeeper's son and you know what it means in extreme weather conditions to have to do that. So how did, how did your, your time spent on a course, like uh, on, on the um, peninsula? Well, it
1: took, on it didn't take very much chain. time to build because we weren't allowed to build very much. Uh, we're just building greens. What took a lot of time was the uh, the research and the negotiation with the environmental control bodies to figure out, you know, where are the most uh, important parts of the site and how do we protect them in perpetuity, and yet how can we build golf holes through that that don't endanger those? And that took a couple of years of intense work from a whole raft of people. The actual building of it was relatively straightforward once we got that go ahead. There's no irrigation in the fairways there. There's, it is incredibly simple. So when it gets dry, it's dry. Uh, and there's only walking. There's the, you could, you can't drive a car. You're walking only. There are little signposts telling you which way to go because it doesn't naturally You know, there's backtracking and climbing over dunes to get to the next tee. So it's an adventure. You know, you're exploring like a little kid, exploring these sand dunes, trying to figure out where you can hit your next shot. If, If you're up for that, this is your cup of tea. If you want something where you don't have to think and you want to drive a car, you might hate it. So it's an acquired taste, I think, for someone making that trek down the long and winding road, they wouldn't be disappointed. It would tick their boxes. Uh, its I spoke to a chap only this morning in Scotland, uh, the Lynx Diary, uh, and they absolutely loved it. They, they thought it was the best thing they played last year. Uh, and I said, you know, I can't really take much credit. The, the credit goes to the team that managed to get permission. Uh, we were just lucky enough to be the ones to... Float down a layout for eighteen holes on top of land we couldn't otherwise touch.
2: Right, and now, other than driving the left-hand side of the road down the long and winding road, I'm I'm doing it. I was already convinced before meeting oh, you, David. That so. is,
1: I've driven that road a thousand times. It is absolutely breathtakingly gorgeous. You'll be looking as you go down. You'll be looking out to your right uh, to the the islands that lay off the coast there, and it's just one island after another. Haile, Gia, Jura, uh, they're all islands of my childhood. I spent most of my childhood on that coastline. Uh, so it's a very special place to me uh, and a place that I, I will no doubt find my, uh, you know, that's where I'll be when I'm dead and gone. It's, uh, that that's in my will to be taken back there and, and planted along that coastline.
2: That's incredible. Yeah, I am so excited uh, to be going. Well, we'll take that offline cuz I need a couple of suggestions, but um yeah, I I, I know that I'm not going to get San Diego weather in Scotland in July, but I'm looking forward to everything it can throw Why at get me. January so, San
1: Diego weather in July. <laughs> that's okay.
2: Yeah, that's okay. Well,
0: it feels like uh circling back to your to your childhood is the is a good place to to end and and you've been kind enough with your time. David, so we will, uh, we'll let you go. Um, thank you. Happy new year. And we appreciate your time and your thoughts. And, uh, we would encourage everyone to go try to play. I've never played one of your courses, so it's it's something I, I have to do stuck up here in Boston. Uh, got to do some traveling there's to get one to
1: corner of the world. But... I haven't made it to yet. So if there's anybody in yeah. Boston that wants a cool golf course, give me a shout.
0: Yeah, we need them. Yeah. Yep. We yeah. need them. Well, thanks so... guys. Time, right. I hope you invite me yeah. back sometime. That's it for today's podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please make sure you subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks to David McClay Kidd for being so generous with his time and chatting with us today. And thanks to Cobra, our sponsor. And please make sure to visit AmateurGolf.com for all of your schedules, news, rankings, and results needs in the amateur game from around the world. And any new members can use the promo code BIRDIE50, that's B I R D I E 50, when they sign up for a subscription to get a discount off their first year. That's it for today. And as always, keep it right of the trees on the left and keep it left of the trees on the right.